0: you think about giving that bag to one child? What do you think? What's the first thing the thought that comes to your mind? Pardon? Yeah. One child, not to the rest. A typical person would say, "That's not fair, of course. The passage of Scripture we're going to look at today is probably the most un-American passage you will ever find in the Bible. Almost everything we believe in as Americans is going to be challenged by this passage of Scripture. So who are we as Americans? How did our nation begin? Our nation began with a war against a sovereign, a king. We don't like kings in this country. Why? because we don't believe in kings we believe in democracy we believe that government should be of the people by the people and for the people not some king or queen we don't believe in that we do not believe that any sovereign has any right to tell us what to do that's part of being an american moreover our Pledge of Allegiance states, and you can say this, it ends with, with liberty and for all. Of course, we believe in justice and fairness for all. We don't always practice that, as you know, but that's our stated belief. We believe in liberty and justice for all. Moreover, the preamble to our Declaration of Independence states, We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Oh, you know it all. We're a a country that believes in equality. And uh, sociologists tell us that the most important value to every American is radical ontological individualism. That means we, more than any other country on earth, believe in individual freedom. I'm proud to be an American because at least I know I'm... Oh, you know it well. You know your songs too. We believe that As individuals, we have freedom, and that's why a lot of the politics of our country is based on, no, you cannot tell me as an individual what I can and cannot do, because we believe in individual freedom. Moreover, we believe, as Americans, in equality of opportunity, and one of the big, woke facets of our culture today is a strong antipathy to privilege. We shouldn't be in a nation of privilege where certain people based on the color of their skin have have privilege. This has almost become now America's cardinal sin is privilege. And of course, what we're best known for in the history of the world is we are people that believe in the Protestant work ethic. That if you work hard, you can succeed in this nation more than every other nation on earth. Because in other nations, it sometimes doesn't matter how hard you work. The system is stacked against you, or there's a particular caste into which you are born. And you can't get out of it, no matter how hard you work. We believe that hard work pays off, and that hard work is necessary for success. And the American dream is possible for all people. That's at least what we say we believe. Now... Every one of those concepts that I just mentioned is going to be challenged by the passage we're going to look at today in the Bible. Every one of them. And you're not going to like it, nor do I. Because it challenges almost everything we believe in as Americans. Now, I spent three years of my life living in a monarchy. I lived in a country where we had a king, and it wasn't a constitutional monarchy like the Queen of England. It was a real king that had all the power and owned all the land in the whole country. People lived on the land only because the king allowed you to do so. I lived in a, in a monarchy. I know a little bit of what that means, to live in a monarchy, but we don't as Americans. We don't believe in that. We don't want that. Closest we come is the Kennedy family and Camelot, and that's just kind of a myth in America today. Well, if the passage last week, Romans chapter 8, was one of the most comforting passages you could ever find, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. That's so comforting. The passage this week is going to be the most controversial. And it's going to be the most challenging. And it's going to be one that we don't like at all. Because now the Apostle Paul is going to shift his focus. Remember, he began with showing that human beings, all of us, religious people, irreligious people, moral people, immoral people, really super good people, really bad people, all of us have the same problem. We all fall short of the glory of God. All of us. No exceptions. I don't care how good you are. That's a problem. It's a really big problem. And because it's such a big problem, not a single human being has any right to claim God's righteousness. Not one. We've all forfeited that. But God. In chapters 3, 4, and 5 Paul introduces this incredible concept that our righteousness does not come from inside of us, what we do, but righteousness is a gift that comes from God to us through Jesus. That's a revolutionary concept, one that's changed the whole world. But if in fact we are now saved, it starts with sin, then it moves to salvation. If in fact we're saved by grace through faith, as um, we, we heard this morning with the children, Well, then, if our salvation is based on what God has done and we don't have to do anything except trust that what God said is true, well, there's no incentive to to follow God. There's every incentive to do whatever you want to do. In other words, you might as well sin so that God can give us more grace. Isn't that a good deal? No, it's not. Because that will destroy you spiritually. And so the next chapters, chapters 6, 7, and 8, where we just finished, it talks about how do you grow as a Christian? The theological word for that is sanctification. How do we become more like Christ? And that's what those chapters are about. But now we address another problem. Because remember, the Apostle Paul is Jewish, And the Apostle Paul is an heir of the Jewish faith, and he was deeply involved in the Jewish faith. He was a rabbi. He went to rabbinical school. He was the valedictorian of his class under the top rabbi of his time, Gamaliel. He knew Judaism, and he loved his people. And so now he says, well, if in fact these Gentiles are pouring into the church and they're saved not by following Moses's law, but by following, by putting their faith in Jesus. Does that mean this is plan B? So God had plan A and that was to use the Jewish people as a light to the nations, but plan B, plan A failed miserably. And so now God has shifted to plan B. Is that right? No, no, no. He's only had one plan, plan A. And so now he's going to address what you might want to call the Jewish question. If, in fact, now the Gentiles are invited into the kingdom family of God by faith, what about the Jewish people? Has God now rejected the Jewish people? Well, of course, the obvious answer is no. No. Jesus is Jewish. Paul is Jewish. Peter is Jewish. Every single Christian for the first 10 years of the church was Jewish. All of them. No, the church is built, all of the church is built on Judaism. It's built on Jewish people. So that's obviously not true. But now the Apostle Paul is going to address the very, very tricky subject of what we call the sovereignty of God and the subject called election, which means choosing. So now Paul is going to address this subject that Americans hate because we don't believe in sovereigns, we believe in us, democracy. We don't believe that somebody should tell us what we should. We don't believe that someone should give a bag of candy to one child and not to all of them. That's not fair. We don't believe in that. We believe in equality of opportunity. We believe in individual freedom. We believe in democracy. Well, we're going to see those concepts not destroyed. We're going to see a different... um, We're going to see a theological twist on them. And then at the end some pretty profound questions we'll have to ask ourselves. So please turn with me in your Bibles or in your cell phones or whatever it may be to Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to 29. A man who was the chaplain of the Senate, he wrote this. If one sought to be popular in the pulpit, to preach simply what folks like to hear, he would certainly skip over the ninth chapter of Romans. Romans. For not only is this a difficult chapter, it contains a very unpopular truth, a truth which we find ourselves intuitively resisting, election and the sovereignty of God. We don't like this passage. Now, by the way, that's one of the advantages of preaching through books of the Bible. The advantage is, well, or disadvantage. You can't skip the things you don't like. Now, if I was one of those people that could just pick and choose whatever I like, I would skip this passage. I can assure you, I would never touch it with a 10-foot pole because Americans don't like it. Now, maybe in Swaziland where I live, they might like it okay because they're used to sovereigns, but we Americans don't like it at all. But I'm going to ask you to join with me as we address the subject of God's sovereignty. Here we go. It's going to begin in chapter 9, verses 1 to 9. And the first principle we're going to see about God's election is that it is not based on human privilege. But it's instead going to be based on God's promise. Now again, we live in a society that is increasingly opposed to what we call privilege. And we're going to see, as he starts these verses, the first thing he's going to focus on is Jewish privilege. Let's see what he says. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. Now, that's pretty solemn. He's solemn when he says, what I'm saying to you is the truth and My heart is broken. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Look at this next verse. For I wish, I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Wow. What's he going to say? Paul says, I so love my people that I would be willing to sacrifice the eternal destiny of my soul if, in fact, that would produce the eternal acceptance of my people. Wow, that's quite a statement. And now he is going to highlight the privileges of the Jewish people. Here they go. Theirs is the adoption of sonship. The Jewish people were set aside by God from all the other people on earth. A little tiny fragment, 0.2% of the world's population have been set apart by God uniquely for his blessing. That's like giving the candy to one child out of hundreds and hundreds. How unfair could that be? Theirs, is the divine glory. You see, the people of Israel, unlike any other people that have ever lived on planet Earth, they were able to see with their very own eyes the glory of God for every single minute of every single day for 40 years. No one else in the history of the world has ever had that. They saw the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire as God led them through the wilderness to the promised land, unlike any other people. They had the covenants. No other people has had a relationship with God based on covenants God made with their heroes, like Abraham, like Moses, like David, and like Jeremiah. The Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the the Davidic covenant, and what's called the new covenant. Theirs was the receiving of the law. God only gave his holy law to one group of people. The Jewish people who were then given, entrusted with the responsibility to spread that to the whole world. Which in some little way they have done. They were given the temple. Designed by God. Designed and all the structures of it. Designed by God to bring people into the presence of God. Consider. Consider um, how it happened. God calls his people. First of all, the first thing you need to do in worship is show up, which we don't do much anymore today. Show up. And then when you got to the temple, and then when you got or the tabernacle in the temple, the first thing you did as you got there, you looked up because it was a huge building, way higher than you were. And then as you walked in the doors, you had to fess up. Because there was the the altar of God where you had to confess your sin. And on the other side of the altar was the the cleansing, the laver of cleansing. Clean up. God forgives your sins and you're clean. And then there was the table of showbread and the menorah, the light of God. Look up. And then the table of incense. Pray up. And finally into the holy of holies. God designed their worship to bring them into the presence of God. Who else has had that? No one, but God's special people, the Jewish people. And then they had the promises. They were given promises of God that can never be changed. Then they had the patriarchs. Whoa, the people we call the fathers of the faith, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Wow, what privilege how dare god give this little tiny group of people hardly mentioned in all of the world's population all these privileges but but now he's going to say that though they were given all these privileges who is really israel here's the next verse it is not as though god's word had failed God gave them all these advantages. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appropriate time, God, Sarah, will have a son. You see, immediately remember our our, our, our principle? God's election is not based on human privilege. Because the Jewish people had all kinds of privileges. But just because they had the privileges does not mean they're part of God's covenant family because it's not based on privilege it's based on promise you see and you see what god did you see um isaac is not abraham's first child ishmael is but god said no the promise is going to go through sarah his barren wife who had isaac when she was 90 miraculously so God says, no, I don't follow necessary, the physical rules. My selection is not based on privilege or even position. It's based on my promises because I made a promise to Abraham that I would bless him and his seed. And through him, the whole world would be blessed through the seed of Abraham. And I meant his seed through Sarah, his wife. Whoa, someone wrote this. The Jewish people, Paul's kin, developed a serious spiritual problem. They rightly understood that they were God's chosen people, and they were given enormous spiritual blessings. However, they came to see this status and these privileges as synonymous with spiritual life. That's where they made their mistake. Faith, not heredity, is the eternal principle of sonship. We are not members of God's family because of our heredity. Someone wrote it this way. What counts is grace, not race. God does not make his decisions based on race. He does make them on grace. Tony Evans wrote this. God has a lot of children, but he doesn't have any grandchildren. God has no grandchildren, never has had any, never will have any. You don't get an automatic pass into God's family because you're his child. Grandchildren don't get that. He has children, millions and millions, hopefully billions of them, but no grandchildren. We each have to stand before him alone. The first principle is it's not based on privilege. It's based on God's promise. But now he's going to enter another one. We believe as Americans so, so, so deeply that you get what you deserve. Our our, our culture is full of idioms. What goes around comes around. What you sow, you will. You know them. We talk about good karma and bad karma. And so it's very natural that as Americans, we believe that God's choice should be based on human goodness. Isn't that the way it should be? It's not. God's going to now say that his, his selection, his election, is not based on human goodness. It's based on God's grace. And they're very different. Let's see what it says in verse 10. Not only that, but Rebecca's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet, before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated.'" Ooh, we don't like that one at all. Better get back to that one in a minute. Now remember what's going on here, if you remember your Bible. Abraham is the first patriarch. Then we have Isaac. Isaac got married to Rebekah, and they had twins. The first twin that came out was called Red, because his body was all red. His, His name was Esau. But the second one that came out was holding on to his older brother's heel. What was he trying to do? He's trying to pull him back into his mother's womb so he could get out first. That's what he's doing. And so they give him the name heel grabber. That's his name, which means Jacob in Hebrew. Same word, heel grabber. Now, a heel grabber is somebody who's always trying to pull you down so they can get themselves ahead. And guess what Jacob does with his whole life? He's a heel grabber. Another synonym for a heel grabber is a big fat liar. He's a big fat liar. Now, if you look at the scriptures, Esau has far better character than Jacob. Jacob is a manipulator. He's a heel grabber. He's a big fat liar. And Esau is kind of a dumb ox. God says, I said from them before they were born, I chose Jacob the younger, the heel grabber, the big fat liar, the manipulator, the idiot over the dumb ox. What? What? Why? Because I make my decisions based on grace. Not goodness. Because the relative goodness of Esau is greater than the relative goodness of Jacob. And yet God chose Jacob. Now when he says, Esau I have loved, or Jacob I have loved, Esau I hated, that's simply an idiom. He doesn't mean hate in our sense of the word at all. Even though it's a lightning rod verse, it actually is a quote from the book of Malachi. Paul quotes the Old Testament here. And it simply means that I, in my covenant, my covenant of grace, God said, I chose Jacob and I did not choose Esau. That's what it means. And what's God trying to say? Well, God's selection is not based on what a person has done, but upon God's grace. Um, This is a story. A group of theologians were discussing God's election, his selection, and our free will. The longer they talked, the hotter it got, and the more they disagreed. And as you might expect, the the groups split into two groups, but there was one poor fellow that didn't know which group he belonged to. So he went to the election crowd. As soon as he got there, they asked him, why are you here? He said, I came out of my own free will. Frowning, they responded, free will? You can't join us. Get out of here. Go over there. So he retreated from the free will crowd and went to the election crowd. And they asked him, why are you here? Well, I I was sent here. He responded, leave at once, they shouted. You can't join us unless you came here out of your own free will. You didn't get it you can't please either one the guy was stuck in the middle which is probably what the Bible teaches they're both true in our logical minds we have to wrestle with this as theologians have done throughout all of history but someone said you don't have to try to reconcile friends in the mind of God they're both they're both true you see God's selection is not based on our relative goodness. That's very un-American. It's not based on how hard we work, how many good deeds we've done, how religious we are, how much money we've given. It's based on God's unmerited favor. That's called grace. Charles Spurgeon, the, the great, great preacher of England, he said this, God chose me before I came into the world. Because if he'd waited until I got here, he never would have chosen me. <laughs> Thank you, Spurgeon. You're right. So God's selection is not based on, on our goodness. That's made clear by Jacob and Esau. It's based on God's grace. Well, now in verses 14, he's going to come up with another one. This is very American. He's going to say that God's selection is not based on justice. It's based on mercy. Now, justice and fairness are as American as baseball and apple pie. Thus, it is natural for us as Americans to think that God's picking of some and not picking of others is is fundamentally arbitrary, it's unjust, and it's unfair. God, what right have you to pick some and not pick others? Well, let's see what Paul says. What shall we say then? Is God unjust? There's the question. Answer, not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have com- mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. You see, not just this, but mercy. Mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens those whom he wants to harden. Now, of course, we don't like that at all. It seems (laughs) that's not fair. Now, remember, Moses and Pharaoh are are both once Jewish and once a a, a Gentile, Pharaoh is. And they lived at the same time. They were enemies of each other. And one of them was used by God as his instrument uh, of, of hardness to allow the Jewish people to be freed from slavery. And the other becomes the great emancipator of the Jewish people, Moses, and the giver of the Mosaic law. Well, why? Why is one, though both, Moses is a murderer, by the way, he killed someone in cold blood. Why, why does he get picked and Pharaoh becomes an instrument of, of, of evil? Why one and not the other? Well, um, here's how I see it. Imagine with me that you are God, which is, of course, impossible for us to do. And let's say we're God and uh, our name is George. Now, George means farmer. And let's say God is a farmer because the Bible uses many farming illustrations. So God is a farmer and he happens to be a fruit farmer. He's an apple orchard farmer. And he grows this magnificent orchard full of apple trees. He cultivates them. He prunes them. He fertilizes them. He waters them. And the trees are full of beautiful apples. And this is the image that we have: is that God, the farmer, goes to his tree, sees them full of apples, and says, "I think I'll pick this one," and he puts it into his basket. And I think I'll pick this one, and he puts it into his basket. And I think I'll pick this one, and I'll put it into his basket. And I'll put this one into my basket. And when we have that image in our mind, we shout as American, "That's not fair!" What about the ones you didn't put into your basket? That's not fair. And frankly, it isn't fair. But the picture is wrong. That's not the accurate picture. This is the accurate picture. God does, in fact, have an apple orchard, and he's done everything he can to make those trees fruitful. And they were full of, when he made it, they were full of the most beautiful apples you can imagine, made in his own image. One day he went to his apple trees with his basket and he looked at his whole orchard and there was not one apple on any tree. Not a single apple. And the ground was just full of rotten apples. The ground full of worms, all brown. They couldn't eat them. They were all ruined. Every one of them. You know what God did? He got out of his basket and he went down on his knees and he starts to pick up rotten apples and puts them into his basket. Now, can you say that that's unfair? No. Stupid, yes. Unfair, no. The question you must ask is why would God do that? They're all rotten. You see, it's, that's the whole point. It's, it, it's, not, it's not about um, uh, justice or what's fair. Because if God was just, we're all doomed for eternity. Every single one of us. The wages of sin is death. So it's not based on... Whether If God, thank God you're not just. Thank God that your mercy exceeds your justice. Because if it didn't, no human being made in your image would have a prayer. But what God has done is he's gone down and he's picked up rotten apples. And he turns them into trophies of his grace and mercy. Wow. You see, the perspective is different. Remember what Jesus said? Jesus told the parable about the workers in the vineyard. And there was a vineyard owner. He went into the, to the market, into the town. He said, I need some people to work on my vineyard. I need to pick my crops. And he said, I'll pay you a day's wage. And so he went in at 6 a.m., which is when the workday began, and he hired people to work in his fields, and they came. But the the harvest was so great, he needed more workers. So at 9 o'clock in the morning, he went into the town and got some more workers. And he didn't still have enough workers. He went at 12 o'clock and got some workers. And finally, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, he still got more workers because the harvest was so great. And at 6 o'clock in the evening, when the workday ended, he calls everyone to pay them. And the people who worked three hours, he gives them a day's wage. And then those who worked six hours, he gave them a day's wage. And those who worked nine hours, he gave them a day's wage. And those who worked 12 hours, he gave them a day's wage. He gave them all the same. And you know what happened. (laughs) Those who worked 12 hours say, wait a minute, this isn't fair. Fair? Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you worked, I would give you a day's wage? Your problem is not my fairness. Your problem is my mercy. You have a problem with me showing mercy. You have no problem with fairness. I was completely fair. But you do not like the fact that I'm merciful. So Jesus said, Can you imagine? Let's say we have a prison, and and, and you are in that prison and you are guilty. And you're a prisoner for life because of the crime you committed. And some official, a governor or a president, pardons you. Now, do the rest of the guilty prisoners in the prison have the right to claim, that's not fair? No. It is fair. It is just that they, for crimes that they've committed, have to pay the price. You see, their problem is not with justice or fairness. Their problem is with mercy, and forgiveness. It's amazing how quickly we, forgive, we forget our guilt and clamor to be treated as if we're innocent. Well, finally, God's selection is not based on equity. It's based on God's purpose. Here's verse 19. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? In other words, so if we're simply pawns in God's hands or just people on the end, marionettes on the end of a string, what right has God to judge us? Because we're just doing what he programmed us to do. But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of wrath prepared for destruction? And what if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the object of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us? whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Does not a potter have a right to make one pot out of which the king eats and another pot to be used as a toilet? Does he not have the right to choose the purpose of these two pots made by the same potter's hands? You can't say to the potter, well, I want to be the one that holds the king's wine, not the refuse. I want that one. Well, that's the potter's job. Here's what it says, a man named Douglas Moo wrote. When God chooses people to be saved, he acts out of pure grace, granting a blessing to people who in no way deserve it. But when he destines people to wrath... He sentences them to a fate they have already chosen for themselves. The beauty of being a Christian is we don't get the fate we've chosen for ourselves. We get a fate that we don't deserve. Well, he's going to end with a bunch of quotes from the Old Testament from Hosea and Isaiah. Let me just read it quickly. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not people, they will be called children of the living God. Hosea prophesies that God is going to turn from the Jewish people, who was the centerpiece of his plan now to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. A new people now will be called God's people. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the Israelites be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have become like Gomorrah. It emphasizes God's grace. The problem, of course, is we don't see ourselves as clay. <laughs> we see ourselves as the potter. We see ourselves as people who have every right to tell God how, what he's supposed to do. But do we forget that what we're made out of? What are we made out of? Dirt. That's what the Bible says. And so the figure is impre- incredibly imp- appropriate. God took the chemicals of the earth and breathed into us the breath of life and made us in his image. He's the potter. We're the clay. We we act sometimes as if we're wiser than God and that we can sit in judgment of him. Someone wrote this out of pride in ourselves and our achievements and a culturally influenced belief in ourselves as the masters of our fate, we have a hard time giving God his due. Well, how do we end this wonderful passage? Let me start with this, a reminder of who we are. Some years ago, this is reported by Time magazine, a math test was given to 13-year-olds in six different countries of the world. The South Koreans ranked number one in that math test and the Americans ranked number six. We were the lowest. But then they did a second thing. After they gave the test and ranked the six countries, they asked, how did you feel about your performance? Here's what we get. Only 23% of the Koreans responded that they felt good about their performance on the test. The lowest response of any nation. And you want to guess who got the highest? Americans, yes. Americans came out number one. They felt the best about how they had performed on the test, and yet we were dead last. Charles Krauthammer observed, this is what he wrote. American students may not know math, But they have evidently absorbed the lessons of the newly fashionable self-esteem curriculum where kids are taught to feel good about themselves. So even though our performance doesn't match, what what dominates our culture is the sense that we're good. Here's another one. This is author James Hunter. He did a study of, of religious books And 87.8% of the titles dealt with subjects related to the self, its discovery and nature, and the resolution of its problems and tensions. Only 12% of the religious books had anything to do with anyone or anything other than ourselves. Again, what does that say? We fit the great poem, by Henley of Invictus. I am the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. That's what we're bred in. That's the water in which we're birthed. That's the culture in which we're taught. And so when God comes along and says, I am sovereign. You are not. I don't judge by your puny ideas of fairness. I judge by my grace. I'm a God of grace. I'm a God of mercy. And by the way, have you forgotten your sin? Have you forgotten that none of us deserve the grace of God? Do I really see myself for who I am? It it seems to me that this text of scripture is one of the best texts in the Bible to make us mad or to humble us. How dare you choose, you don't choose me? How dare? Or we say, Oh God, why in the world did you choose me? Lord, what have I ever done to deserve even one of the pleasures I've known? The country song. Lord, help me, Jesus. I've wasted it. So help me, Jesus. It seems to me the key in our hearts is this. Are we people of incredible gratitude? Are we gripers? Are we people who live our lives on this earth full of humility based on the incredible grace of God to which we're the recipients? Or are we haughty? I deserve this. Are we people... Who believe, who are, feel that we're entitled? I deserve. Or people who, by the Holy Spirit's enablement, live our lives? I don't deserve. I serve. That's who I am. Are we people who pray, My will be done, O Lord, on earth, which is not in heaven, or Thy will be done on earth? Are we people who say, Honestly, Thou art the potter, I am the clay. We have to answer those questions. Someone said this. Try to explain election and you will lose your mind. But explain it away and you will lose your soul. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we don't want to lose our souls. We honestly, humbly confess we don't understand your ways. But we know you're good, and we know you're pure, and holy, and righteous. And above all, you're a God of incredible mercy and grace. Otherwise, we wouldn't have a prayer. I pray out of the riches of your goodness and grace, and sovereignty and election, and that you would create a people here in this church of humility, people of a gratitude people full of generosity people who are servants of your cause and of other people people who live our lives not griping but full of thanks for you to you for what you've given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ to the end we pray in Jesus name amen please stand with me and for our benediction this morning And by the way, after the benediction, I think the members need to be seated again because of the the short business meeting. May you leave this place knowing that there's a God who who loves this whole world, that gave his son to die for us. And we are the precious recipients of the grace that we don't deserve. Thanks be to God. Amen.